my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hello, and welcome to season two of the Future Legends of Advertising podcast on iHeart, featuring the hottest up-and-coming stars in advertising, as well as the biggest legends in the game. In this series, we explore the future of the advertising industry through never-before-heard conversations between those who created it and those who are shaping its future. We're your hosts, Haley Romer and Ross Martin. Now, let's meet the legends. I'm so excited to welcome a fantastic new guest to this episode, someone who I've never met. This is my first time meeting her. It's Morgan DeBon. She is the founder and CEO of Blavity. And I've been waiting for this episode for a while. I, you know, when Haley and I started splitting our episodes this season, I said, I want the one with Morgan. And she, we fought over it. And I won that one. So I would like to welcome you to the show, Morgan DeBon. Thanks, Ross. I'm excited to be here. Now, I know a lot of people already know this, but to repeat, for anyone who doesn't know, Morgan is a total trailblazer, an entrepreneur, an investor, an advisor. She's the founder and CEO of Blavity, which builds solutions for Black and multicultural audiences and enterprises who want to reach them. Blavity itself has gotten quite large. It's a huge player and very significant in our industry. There's Blavity Media Group. There's Blavity 360. There's the Talent Infusion team, and then there's Afrotech, which is the largest tech conference in the world for Black founders and innovators. Uh, several people from my company, known, go to Afrotech every year. Um, so, Morgan, I don't really know where to begin with you except to say, first and foremost, congratulations on being inducted into the 2023 Advertising Hall of Achievement. How does it feel? Thank you. It feels great. It's a tough process. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's definitely an honor to be amongst so many incredible people and so many people that I've looked up to along the way. I didn't start off in advertising. I didn't start off in marketing. And so it's a beautiful kind of 360 moment for me. Yeah, it's a very interesting award, the Hall of Achievement, because for those who aren't familiar, it only goes to seven people a year. There's only about 230 or 240 people in it total. And it's a very personal award. I mean, I know you're a very generous person who always deflects and tries to give credit to the team for everything. And I know you have a great team. You never would have gotten here if you didn't. But this award is like uniquely personal, right? Does that feel, it feels different, right? It is uniquely personal. I mean, <laughs> the pitch materials, I'm like, this is, <laughs> we're really pitching me here. 
<laughs> well, you look, I, I'm not allowed to tell you what happened in the room when we were voting and discussing everybody. And um, there are a lot of amazing candidates this year. But you're a first ballot Hall of Achiever, and that means something. It means that what you've done here is undeniable, and your impact on advertising and on culture is very real. So I hope you're you're proud of that, and I hope your family's proud of you and everything like that. I called my dad and my mom when I got it, and I said, you guys, I'm getting into the Hall of Achievement. And they were like, okay, you got to send us the documents because, like, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. I was like, no, I promise you I would never call you. I never call them for awards, you know. But this, like, one. this one. This one gets a phone call. And, Ross, I don't know if they told you, but I'm nine months pregnant. So I also was really nervous because I was like, oh, man, you know, am I going to be able – to go, you know, baby comes early, maybe we can yeah. swing it, you know, so yeah. it's, um, it was a very emotional process as well, because I was hesitant to, uh, you know, apply when I got a lot going on. <laughs> well, I think, no, that's interesting. We should get into that in this episode around how you balance family and career, because you're right in the heart of both things. And I would, I would argue that your baby is going to be your biggest achievement. Maybe not your your advertising stuff. <laughs> I think my baby will be my best creative project yet, for sure. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So this is going to be an interesting episode because we are about to be joined by an absolute icon. I mean, Bruce Gordon is a total legend. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer back in 2007. And when we told you we were pairing with him with you on this episode, what was your first reaction to that? I said, oh, like we're about to get serious here. You know, there's a lot going on between uh, our two generations um, and in terms of changes and hopes and aspirations that I think his generation laid the foundation for that, you know, we're still trying to push through, you know, as it relates to holding enterprises accountable, as it relates to civic engagement. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to chat with Bruce today. Well, without further ado, let me introduce the man, the myth, and the legend, Bruce Gordon. There's a lot you could say about his career. Former president and CEO of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, obviously one of the most important institutions in the country, but also his career itself at Verizon, legendary. He was there for 35 years, led the $23 billion consumer and small business unit, and also directed corporate advertising and brand management. He managed 35,000 people in his workforce worldwide. And then the career itself was honored, as I said, in 2007, first ballot advertising hall of fame from the American Advertising Federation, but a whole list of other acknowledgements and, and rewards for him. In 2006, Ebony Magazine named him one of its 100 most influential Black Americans and organizational leaders. 2022, ranked number six on Fortune's list of the 50 most powerful Black executives. And then Black Enterprise named him 1998 Executive of the Year. Today, he consults for a whole broad range of Fortune 500 companies who need him. Uh, and this industry is better for him. Bruce Gordon, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Ross. And thank you for whoever made the decision to pair me with Morgan. She made the reference to our respective generations. And I will tell you that for an old guy like me, my peers and I oftentimes say who's coming that's going to continue the journey and continue the fight and make a difference. And Morgan is just that person. She certainly should have been a first ballot selection because her credentials uh, just have, have earned her that, uh, that honor. So it's, it's, my, uh, it's my good fortune 
to be sharing this podcast with her. Wow. Well, that's very special. I'm, I'm glad we got this one right. What if you didn't like each other at all? That would have been <laughs> All right, so we got that out of the way that you somehow, you, you know each other, I think, because as I said earlier, you, you both serve on the Black Economic Alliance. You've met and you've worked together before. Is that right? We're both members of the advisory board. I was actually a, a founding board member, so I was on the you know, board of directors. But, um, you know, our work causes us to collaborate, but I've not spent this kind of quality time with Morgan, so that's another real benefit of uh, this podcast. What is that organization, if I can ask you, Morgan? What is what is the Black Economic Alliance and why are you part of it? Yeah, Black Economic Alliance, we call it BEA for short, is I think at this point the largest Black PAC that is advocating for um, the advancement of Black folks through economic policies and uh, bipartisan. We support policies, candidates, and also civic engagement. There's a 501c3, 501c4, and foundation. Um, and so they do a number of things. You know, they're active behind the scenes on the Hill. They're active with philanthropy and getting my generation to understand how collective donations can work to move our agenda forward, uh, which is very new and not something that we all do <laughs> or talk about, which is one of the things that I'm really passionate about and I work with um, the team on is how to engage millennials, Gen Z, who maybe feel like politics is out of reach um, and that these things don't affect us and we don't have much power. And it's actually, it's not the case. Uh, and BEA in a very short period of time has had a huge influence on our political system um, and politicians, donations, et cetera. So it's been a learning experience for me being in a different world, still doing my job, but in a different place and just being around so many incredible Black executives at the same time. A lot of people talk about you two as trailblazers. When someone says you're a trailblazer, a pioneer, do you like being called that? What does that even mean to you? Do you feel that way about yourselves? I can't tell you that I, I set out to be a trailblazer. I just set out to do good things. You know, I was a product of the, of the 60s. Uh, so I came of age and my, my thinking was shaped by what was going on in the world. So this is the Vietnam War, the, the civil rights movement. Uh, that, was, that was my surround. And it became evident to me as a young man that if the quality of life for Black folks in America was going to get better, and it certainly needed to, that that required engagement. Uh, so I, when I went to work at the, at the Bell System, um, I didn't go there to be a telecommunications expert, and I had no expertise in terms of marketing or sales or whatever. Uh, I went there to be a change agent. So ch change agency has been sort of at the, the core of everything that I've done uh, since then. Uh, it, as it turned out, marketing, to me, is another platform for change agency. Uh, and particularly in my industry, which had been a monopoly when I started and became a fully competitive sector when I finished. So change is what drives me. And if that ends up doing some trailblazing along the way, that's all well and good. But that was never the mission. Change agency, making things better was what inspired me. 
I agree with Bruce. Like I didn't set out to win awards or have milestones and, and things of that nature. I actually started my career in Silicon Valley thinking that technology would be the fastest way to make impact. You know, you can have Wi-Fi and get access to an entire world of free information, whereas prior generations didn't have that. You had to go to the library and use, I don't know what people were doing to find out books, lots of books, <laughs> you know. But so I moved to Silicon Valley and, and wanted to be around the most innovative people, be around the biggest companies in the world. And unfortunately realized that that was also a space that was not set up for us, that wasn't actually set up for the most innovative people in the world. Uh, it wasn't set up for change and progress for the little guy. It was set up to just reinforce capitalism in, in, in many different ways or get a piece, take over capitalism and shift the industry towards technology. And so that became very frustrating to me. And, and for Blavity, when we first started to build it, it was about, okay, we're going to use this tool, the internet, to build our own power systems and infrastructure. And then if we're really successful at amassing large amounts of consumers in one place, then we're going to have the power because people can't help but look at us. I'm sure there's so many people who would have loved to ignore me, would have loved to ignore Blavity, would have loved to ignore Afrotech. But once you're once you actually have the people behind you, you can't. You can't ignore it. And I think that's what Bruce's generation taught us. It was like, if you have the people on your side, you know, I think about the grassroots campaigns that were done. I mean, we don't do grassroots campaigns in the same way anymore, but we do on the internet, right? And it's like, if you're really noisy and Black folks are the noisiest people on the internet, <laughs> you know, you have to pay attention. We set so many trends. Um, so I knew we had that power opportunity and needed to figure out how to build to to get there. And now there's an immense amount of responsibility where it's like, okay, now we are pushing industries forward. We are in, in conversations at the most senior levels of CEOs. Um, you know, I'm in advisory groups with, with a variety of different corporations on the politics side, technology companies. And so now we're at an interesting point. I'm in an interesting point in my career where I am still CEO by day, uh, but by night, I have a lot of other responsibilities. And so actually, that would be my question to you, Bruce, which is like, how did you, how did you manage your day job as an executive and leader of people with also the responsibilities that were really not really a part of your job description? And, you know, what advice would you give me as I kind of get into that territory? That's a great question. I think that because I had such clarity about my purpose, which I want to actually come back and, and reverse the question to you, it was easy to sort of stay on a track. And my purpose, as I said earlier, really was to, to, to be a change agent, to open doors that were not open to us as Black folks, to get organization, the organization, the company, because I, I wanted to be a change agent inside of of corporate America. So I seized every opportunity that presented itself, sometimes not as selectively, maybe, as I should have been, but I just seized every opportunity that that surfaced and pursued it aggressively. And I found that that was not limited to the workplace. There became some natural extensions. I also found that because there were so few of us, 
keep in mind, I started my career in 1968. The world looked very different then. And just to give you a statistic, Bella, Pennsylvania, the company where I started, had 33,000 employees. And of those 33,000 employees, there were 600 who were middle management and above. There was one African-American and no women. So, I mean, it's just, just, you know. Oh, oh my gosh. So there was abundance of opportunity, right, to, to bring about change. So it, because I was so singularly focused, uh, I found whether it was during the day in the office or during the, the evening, informally collaborating with the few of us who were on a similar trajectory, uh, it, it didn't really require management. It, it required finding the opportunities to get some sleep, but the, the, the need and the opportunities to engage and push for change were, were unlimited. So I just, I just tried to do everything I could anywhere that I could, and I st stayed grounded based upon my purpose. It's clear to me, you should tell me whether I'm, I'm missing something here, but it's clear to me that you're a woman of purpose. You know, you, fame and fortune was, was, was not and is not what drives you. Mm -mm. Uh, and it appears to me that that's, that's been the case. And that, that makes, you know, life's not simple, but it makes it at least kind of clear, right, in terms of, of what you do and what you don't do. I'm curious as to where that came from. How did you identify that purpose? What, what makes you this, this special woman? who is not driven by wealth creation uh, and, you know, headlines. And you're just, you're just trying to do good. Why? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it really stems from my upbringing. You know, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. So I grew up in a state that was, you know, flyover state, more or less. Um, and my parents um, are both from St. Louis. My dad's a sickle cell disease doctor. So I grew up around, and a research doctor as well, so I grew up around my family always advocating for others, always advocating for equity in the healthcare system, always advocating for equity in patient care for Black children who are, you know, more often than not the ones in this country who have sickle cell disease, and he wanted me to be a doctor. I did not want to be a doctor, <laughs> but I said, you know what, maybe I'll be a, I'll, I'll run the hospital. Like, I, I like business. <laughs> and uh, when I first got to college, that was my first minor was a healthcare ma management minor, a major in business. And I started off in the B school. And I realized very, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. I know, shout out to Ross. <laughs> uh, go Bears, which no one says because we're D3. But, and I quickly realized being in the business school, actually, that these are not my people. You know, everybody in the B school was being trained to be management consultants. Uh, that was the thing at the time, you know, work at Deloitte, work at BCG, or go work corporate at Target, Wells Fargo, General Mills, etc. And uh, it was very much a pipeline. And I could tell my first semester, this isn't going to work for me. Like, I'm not this is not, I'm not a pipeline person. <laughs> so I switched to arts and sciences very quickly. And I think that was the first time when I really made a decision for myself that I am going to be someone who doesn't follow the pathways. And I'm going to 
really seek out learning and knowledge and it'll work itself out. If I am good at what I do and I spend time with people and get to know people, I ran for student body president and was very active on campus. I won student body president and just don't just run. Yeah, I won. And um, so I was just really active. I was on the board of trustees as a sophomore. And I think that was the beginning of my self-affirmation that there are things more important than the pursuit of this check mark or this entry-level salary. And I think I, I do aspire to be wealthy. I spent a lot of time actually trying to be wealthy and not rich, meaning I have more ownership of my time. And I take that very seriously. To your point, you know, I'm not walking around in Gucci but I will absolutely pay for Uber Black. <laughs> so it's a, it's a delicate balance. And I think that Blavity Inc. as a company, as we've grown, there's been many opportunities for us to take, you know, advertising deals with clients for campaigns that we don't feel good about. And we've said no. Uh, and again, in early days, I got a lot of flack. I was called very difficult by many clients. Um, I would get phone calls from my Black girlfriends who worked at the companies and say, they're not going to prove this. They don't want to work with you, you know? And I'm like, yeah, because I'm going to hold them accountable <laughs> to the ads that they're putting, to the display photos. You know, we would get ad campaigns. It's a lot better today than it was seven years ago. Blavity's nine years old. We would get display advertisements where the images are white hands and white faces. And I would say, do you have any other ad creative? Like, can we, this isn't going to convert. We're held accountable to click-through rates. We're held accountable to conversion. And you're going to say, we're not converting. And I'm going to say, your ad creative is bad, right? And so that's where I started. Now, where we are now is that we'll say, we'll do the ad creative for you. <laughs> you know, if you don't have it, we'll do it, right? Um, but there was a lot of tension and conflict in terms of the challenges between making money, making revenue for the business and doing something that I thought would make sense in the long term for our, our community, our audience, and ultimately where I wanted Blavity to go. Well, let's talk about progress. You've both made a lot of progress. You've achieved quite a bit in your careers. And as you say, Morgan, it's a lot better today than it was. Sure. You two have worked with and continue to work with some of the biggest companies in the world. When I worked at Paramount, which was 10,000 people at the time, I never felt like I belonged. I never felt like I was making enough progress. I always felt alone. And I had a lot of trouble measuring the impact and the success of the work that I was doing. And I'm wondering for our listeners, did you both feel that way? Do you still maybe sometimes feel that way? I mean, Bruce, for you, not just Verizon, but you've been on the boards of some of the biggest companies in the world, ADT, Northrop Grumman. Tyco International, Office Depot, Infinity Broadcast. I mean, you, Alvin, you, you've, you've been in a lot of huge corporations trying to affect change. And then Morgan, you still today work with some of the biggest companies in the world, American Airlines, PepsiCo, et cetera. How do you guys feel with, as you're doing this? Do you feel like you're making progress or are there times where you're like, I don't feel like anything I'm doing is having an impact? So I, I, I think that um, it's undeniable that there's been progress, at least in, in, my, in my time frame, I've seen plenty of progress and it's worth celebrating. But you'll recall that when Barack Obama found his way to the Oval Office, you heard this uh, post-racial uh, terminology, you know, well, now that there's a black president, well, I guess everything's okay. 
which Morgan and I both know, was far from the truth. Yeah, because people felt, right, like, well, we checked the box. We did that. Now we can go back to having white presidents again. Well, I mean, it was, listen, it was a big deal. Let's, let's, let's be clear about that. Having a black man in the White House was a big deal. But it didn't mean that it was all over and, and all was well with the world. Uh, so let's, let's be clear. Progress, yes. But much more to do without question. And, and we know that. Um, I never wanted to, to belong. So to your point, I, I, I never had this desire to fit in. I was comfortable in my own skin, and I was pretty clear-headed about what my mission was and what it wasn't. So I was kind of unpopular in some respects. I know for a fact that there was a time in my career where the senior executives in the marketing organization were trying to fire me. I mean, I know that, but that was kind of okay because that meant that they were paying attention. That meant that I was making them uncomfortable. And frankly, I liked making folks uncomfortable. And in Morgan's uh, example, you know, my, I learned a lot of that from my parents. So that's I, I, some of my instincts were a function of what I, I learned from my parents. So I was never, tr- I wasn't a joiner. I wasn't a, I want to fit in. I was, I want to make a difference. Were there times when I really felt that I was succeeding? Yes. Were there times when I thought I was banging my head against the wall and wanted to second guess whether I was on the right path? Yes. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story because it really ties into to both being a social change agent and being a marketer. I reached a point in my career where I was a senior officer, but I was not a member of the, the management committee, the top policy setting group. So if I wanted to make something happen, I had to go before that group and pitch them. And I was very aggressive when I first got into this job, this particular job. Well, to fast forward, the president of the company was retiring and he invited uh, people to come in for their last coaching session. And I said, I'll, I'll take you up on that. And I went in and he said, here's what I've observed about you, Bruce. He said, when you first got into this marketing job, he said, you were full of piss and vinegar. And you were in front of the management committee at every meeting, pitching this and pitching that, trying to shake us up. He said, but I noticed over time that you stopped coming. And I have a feeling that it was because you were losing more than you were winning and you became discouraged. And I'm here to tell you that if you're a marketing guy, it's your job description to make people uncomfortable. It's your job description to come into the management committee and tell us to do things. And you're not always going to win. Get over yourself. But you better get back on that horse and come back into that management committee and be the guy that you were a year ago. And that was a hell of a lesson for me because he was right. I got disgusted with the fact that they weren't listening to me and they weren't doing the things that I thought they should do. And then I said, okay, I got it. I'm going to win some, I'm going to lose some. Uh, But even when I lose, you know, get back in there and and fight the fight again. So that was a, that was an important lesson. And I, I learned that whether you're a civil rights activist trying to drive corporate policy that is in the best interest of of people of color and women. Do what you got to do. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. But that same characteristic and quality behavior is what marketers need too. Because it's your job to make the company uncomfortable. It's your job to bring the voice of the customer into the boardroom. It's your job to 
push the company in new directions. That's what you do. And I got real comfortable with that. And it made a big difference in, in how I proceeded and this desire to not fit in, but to just do what makes sense and what's right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the challenges that I have and with our generation is I feel like our tolerance as a community and as a people has gone down. <laughs> I feel like we're not as uh, when people tell us no, it can rattle so many feathers, you know, and I just I see so much chatter online every day, even in my own employees where um, there's an entitlement to an easy yes. And it can be frustrating for me at times, you know, where it's like, it's okay that we piss somebody off. <laughs> like, it's okay. Like, everyone's walking on eggshells. I was like, oh, well, you know, we're going to lose this deal. I'm like, it's okay if we lose this deal because we said something that we really all felt and meant, you know, that we didn't like this campaign or we didn't like this RFP. And we don't, we don't think that it's the right strategy, you know, or uh, even on the, the news side, there's just so much change with how the internet is impacting media companies right now, where we are fighting every day to not get defunded for political news coverage. You know, keyword ad blocking is one of the the issues that I talk about often because what happens is that we have these big corporations who want brand safety and it trickles down all the way to the bottom of the the totem pole. And so we wind up with lists of 2,000 to 5,000 words that our articles can't have. So for example, shoot. So if we have an article that's talking about a photo shoot and we're a black site, that article gets blocked because it's run by an algorithm, right? And we're talking about Fashion Week. <laughs> we're not talking about violence. And we have to fight every single day for those impressions. And to the point where my team's just like, let's just, we're just, give us the list. We're just not going to use these words. And I'm like, no, because the list will only get longer. <laughs> the list will only get longer. And um, th that's just an example of one of the challenges that we face every single day where I feel like, we're losing the battle a little bit. Well, so, so Morgan, I, this is really a question for you both. What does it mean that the American Advertising Federation is inducting the founder and CEO of Blavity this year? Like, what does that say to the industry that you were chosen? Because there's a lot of people we looked at, like, I mean, I, I, but it was, I'm telling you in the room, this, you were a no brainer. Like people were like, oh, Morgan, yeah, it's time. Let's go, let's do this. And, but what does that say? that you're in? I mean, I hope it says that when I post on LinkedIn, everybody won't side text me like, are you sure about this post? And I'm like, yes, I'm sure that people need to know about these issues. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know, Ross. I mean, I, TBD, like I, I'm open to the experience. I'm not going to change who I am. So I hope it means I have a few more people backing me up in, in rooms I'm not in, you know? Well, Bruce, you you look at, at Morgan, you said in the beginning of the conversation as really important to the future of our industry and, and business and culture. What does it say to you that she was chosen this year? What does that mean? What, what does that signal to the industry? Keep in mind, my, my perspective about the industry is that Madison Avenue was one of the final frontiers in terms of making progress with diversity. It was, it was, a, it was a white man's world, and our presence was virtually zero. And the only Black folks that you found in advertising were the ones who had multicultural firms. So... Diversity just was not there. It's certainly gotten better, 
but and what does it say about Morgan? It says, listen, this this woman is doing amazing things. She's a young woman, so she's not even pardon us the sports metaphors here. She's she's still in the first half, right? She's she has she's not in the locker room getting ready for the, the second. She's still in the first half and she's winning. Of course, she should be singled out and recognized for her exceptional accomplishments. And she happens to be a woman of color, but she's a competent professional and that's why she's there. So it's, 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 I won't say it's a, a colorblind decision, but the, the fact that this decision has been made and, and she is an inductee says a lot about the progress that's been made in this particular space where progress has been slow coming. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Bruce. And a, a lot of people talk about the Advertising Hall of Achievement as the the halfway mark in your career. Um, I feel like that's that's true with you, Morgan. There's a lot to come. If you both could, if you could each snap your fingers and change something about the advertising industry, what would you change? I got to pause on that one. That's a good question. Yeah. If I could only change one so, thing. So. It would just be maybe the first thing you would change. Where would you start? What would you start with? trying to think about the thing that would make the most impact, which would mean I'd have to pick the thing that ha is the most painful. What's the biggest pain point? Um, I think this need for efficiency is really challenging. You know, I, I respect that advertising agencies are also businesses. Uh, and everyone's having a tough time with how things are being automated. But the need for efficiency, I think at times, reduces the human element that made marketing and advertising campaigns so potentially impactful for change and storytelling so impactful for change. And I see more and more people trying to pick the most efficient route, not necessarily the most impactful route. And um, I think I would try to help change the corporation's request of the agencies to say, we want, yes, some efficiency, but we want the most impact. And we're willing to work a little slower, give people a little more creativity and some space, and we're not scared of a little chatter on social media for doing so. I'll probably be thinking about the best answer to your question when this session is over. And I'm laying in bed tonight, reflecting what ha what happened this day. So, I'll I'll just say this: um, when I was in the, in a role at Verizon, and we had a stable of ad agencies, uh, like many companies, we had a multicultural agency. Uh, it was Burrell Communications. You know, Tom Burrell is a pioneer and a and a, a, a dear friend and a Hall of Fame inductee. Uh, and Tom's agency did great work. Well, we had a, a big branding campaign coming up for the company. And I talked with the woman who ran advertising in my, on my team. And we said, uh, let's get Burrell to compete for this campaign. It wasn't a multicultural campaign. It was just a campaign. And we said, you know, why, why is it that we would limit them to only doing multicultural work? They're good. They do. They, they produce good creative. If they can produce good creative, great creative, and for a multicultural campaign, then why can't they produce great creative for a general market campaign? So let's give them the opportunity to compete for this work. 
and we did, and they did, and they won. So I say that to say, I think that the, the talent base in our community is so deep and so rich that I don't want them to be underutilized. I don't want that community to be put in a box and say, well, you're good for multicultural work. We're good for all work. You know, and, and it sounds a bit arrogant maybe, but you know, our attitude is anything you can do, I can do better, right? So don't tell me I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Of course I can, give me the opportunity. So I, I just want, uh, and maybe sounds a bit naive, I want there to be more of an inclusive colorblind approach that says, I want the best talent I can get. I want the best talent working on the best, the most important assignments I have. And I'm going to include everybody in that process. So that's an example of progress that could be made, but it's not the only example on whether it's, it's number one on my list because it's the thought that comes to mind, Ross, at the moment. But tonight I'll think of 10 other things that could be number one. I appreciate that. We'll have you back on the podcast too. I mean, I have, if I'm up to me, I have you on every episode, but you, what you just said, Bruce, is something that a friend of mine, someone I learned from a lot who leads one of the very few black owned agencies in this country, which is Joe Anthony at Hero Media. He has been so loud on this issue that you just raised, which is why are you only fucking sending me multicultural opportunities? Why are you only RFPing me on quote African-American campaigns or urban, urban RFPs? Why are you not letting me participate or even thinking of us in general market, which is, it's absurd to think that that's happening in 2023, but it is. Yeah. And that, that is a, that's a huge problem because it just means that we're not getting the best advertising. That's what it means. Yes. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this is an oversimplification and I know it, you know, in, in the agency portfolio of, of skill sets, you obviously have to have good quant people. You have to have good uh, strategy people. You have to have good account management people, but oversimplicity, ultimately the creative has got to be good, right? You got to produce good creative. And if you limit the people who are coming to you to, 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 present creative, then you're not going to get the best work. Never going to get there. Right. Never going to period, get there. period, end of story. So, and I, you know, Morgan to kind of shift a bit, you know, so you've got this uh, millennial talking to a baby boomer, right? So we're, there are generations between us. Uh, I happen to have a 45 year old son. I'm a, I'm a granddad. And, you know, people, you know, look at me and say, you know, you've had a great career. You've done a lot of wonderful things. And, and what, what, what advice do you have? And I sometimes say when I'm looking at a person as young as Morgan, I say, you know, I'm the one who should be asking that question. You know, <laughs> I look at, at my generation and I'm, I try to stay current. But, you know, I, 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 I raised my son trying to teach him. But my son's doing a lot of teaching to his dad these days because he sees a world that I don't see quite through the same lens. And I wonder, Morgan, sometimes, as you look to my generation, what is it that your generation wants to make sure we get? Yeah. So that that's where maybe called on to provide guidance or support or advice. We're doing it with a really solid appreciation 
and understanding of the world in which you are operating. Yeah. I have an abundance mindset in so many different ways. And I think the generation behind me has that as well. Um, you know, when I hear you all talk about the numbers and the data of, you know, 33,000 employees, 600 of management, no women, you know, I'm like, oh man, like I would take myself out the game <laughs> at that point. But we are the new majority now, right? So like Black and and multicultural is the new majority. So we're not actually a minority anymore. And we, I think, all walk around like we're still minorities. And that's just not the case. So it was the case, but it is not. These babies are coming out. You know, my baby will be here. He will be a part of the majority. So that changes everything. Because literally, statistically speaking, we are like, so far away, our comp- uh, the corporations, our policies, our mindset is so far away from the reality that is literally already here. They're just in elementary school right now. And so to me, when I think about Hero Collective, I think about, you know, Walter Isaacson and, and Aaron's team. I think about Burrell. I'm like, oh man, if y'all can just hold on for like 10 more years, you should be the biggest and the baddest because you are going to know more about the majority than these big agencies. You know, you'll probably get acquired, <laughs> you know. Um, but that is what I think. And also that's how I think about Blavity, right? It's like when I first started, we were a minority. By the time I'm finished, we should and could be the largest thing in the room because we're actually servicing the, a better representation of America and the consumer. And I wish that more people of your generation really stood with that confidence. But I think it's because you all have fought so hard for even the minority to get equal representation that the idea that we're going to get even like more than 50% representation (laughs) feels really far-fetched. But I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I want half. Stop with this 2 to 3%. How half? I'm on my Byron Allen. Like... You know, I respect a lot of things that Byron has done because it has forced people to say, like, we should have fair opportunity regardless of these small percentages that you're allocating to this this bucket of people or these buckets of groups or companies. So I'm, I'm grateful for those folks who have challenged the system in a way that I can't quite yet. Look, I learn a lot from every one of these episodes, but um, this one in particular, really moving, inspiring for someone like me to listen to you two talk and be able to honor the two of you with this. Um, yeah, so Morgan DeBond, Bruce Gordon, you're both legends. Thank you so much for joining us. I don't know how we're going to do a better episode than this one, but we're going to try. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. Thank you both, and thanks to everyone for listening to Future Legends of Advertising. Thanks, Ross. Well, that does it for this episode of the Future Legends of Advertising podcast on iHeart. I'm Ross Martin. And I'm Haley Romer. And thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode before you know it. And for more information on the American Advertising Federation, go to aaf.org.